Hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil. I've been studying criminal behavior for more than 40 years, and one of my favorite research tools is Truthfinder. It's online, and you're not going to believe the information stored there. So if you want to know more about that new neighbor, your babysitter, or your online date, give Truthfinder a try. I'm including a special link below with special discount pricing, but you got to click the link and enter Evil 10 at checkout. Now, we're an affiliate, which means we get a small commission, but you can cancel at any time. Welcome to the Profiling Evil Podcast. I'm Mike King. In this episode, we're going to talk with the original Black Klansman, Detective Ron Stallworth. Ron will share his remarkable experience of infiltrating the Ku Klux Klan as an undercover African-American police officer who actually had his KKK membership card personally issued by Klan leader David Duke. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. I'm Mike King from Profiling Evil, and today I'm so fortunate to have two really remarkable guests with me. They're people that I served in law enforcement with during my career. And first and foremost, I'd like to introduce Detective Sergeant Ron Stallworth. And Ron and I came to know each other, gosh, I think early in the 1990s, Ron. And uh, you came to the state of Utah to work in narcotics. I was up at the Attorney General's office and had just left Ogden City, where I was working with Marcy Vaughn, who eventually not only worked with you in narcotics and other investigative areas, but uh, but became the Assistant Chief in Ogden. So, Marcy, Ron, welcome. Thank you very much. Well, so today, folks, we're talking about the Black Klansman, and we are so fortunate because we have with us the original Black Klansman, the real Black Klansman, the person that the Academy Award-winning film was uh, written about. It's based on his book, The Black Klansman, and we hope that you'll all go out and pick up that book and read it uh, from cover to cover. You're going to find it to be an incredibly intriguing read. And uh, and Marcy, I think what we want to do is just kind of listen from Ron and learn what this must have been like to be this young officer the first black officer in the city of Colorado Springs and the first black detective in the city and, and to hear what this amazing journey was all about. Well, first of all, I was not the first black officer. I was the first black detective in Colorado Springs. Um, media hype from the uh, studio is how that whole rumor got started. Um I was 25 years old in 1978 when I launched that investigation. I had been uh, undercover for about two years prior to that. And then I had been assigned to the intelligence division in Colorado Springs for a few months before I uh, was reading the new local newspaper one morning. And in the classified section, I saw something that said Ku Klux Klan for information. And then there was a P.O. box. So I figured, what the heck? I'm an intelligence officer. We read the newspaper every morning to see what was going on in the city and surrounding area that might impact us. This was definitely going to be an impact. So I wrote a letter to the uh, P.O. Box. In the letter, I said, uh, and I'm going to clean it up a little bit for the purpose of your audience, something I generally don't do. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, 
I said, I hate blacks, spicks, chinks, japs, and anyone else that isn't pure Aryan white like I am. And then I did what could have been a fatal flaw in the whole investigation. I signed my real name. Oh, my Why gosh. Why did I sign my real name? Uh, I had a brain cramp that day. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it after all these years. Now, so I, Ron, was there, was there any part of you that you think might have subconsciously wanted to put your name to also say, eh, I'm not afraid of you guys? No. No, it was, it was an honest mistake because I didn't realize I had signed my real name until about a week later when uh, I also put down the undercover phone line in the letter. And a week later, I get a call on the undercover phone line. And when I answered it, the voice said, may I speak to Ron Stallworth? And that's when I said, who the heck is calling me on the undercover phone line? That's when I realized <laughs> I found my real name. So at that point, uh, I had to really uh, think fast. So that's a basic requirement of undercover work. I had to think fast and come up with an excuse for why Ron Stallworth was answering this phone. And uh, the guy told me he was the president of the local chapter of the Colorado Springs uh, KKK. And he said, I got your letter. You had some interesting things to say. Why do you want to join the Klan? Now, that's something every black man in America has always wanted to hear. Why do you <laughs> want to join the Klan? So I said, you know, I don't like what I see happening with uh, the white race. I want to change things for the better for us as a people. And uh, I said, I want to join the Klan so I can uh, address a lot of issues. That's just essentially what I told him. And then I decided to spice it up a little bit. I said, my sister is dating a black man. And every time he puts his filthy black hands on her pure white body, it makes me cringe. I said, I want to do something to stop that abuse of the white race. The response of the chapter president was, you're just the kind of guy we're looking for. Where can we meet? Holy and that's God. when I said, oh, hell. What do I, do? <laughs> yeah. I, didn't say, I didn't say hell, by the way. I said something else. So, I mean, that's at that point, amazing, I had trouble with an answer. I'm sorry? Yeah. I, to me, that's really amazing because, I mean, here you've been fishing, and all of a sudden you've hooked into a big lunker. And that moment that it strikes you and you say to yourself, oh, now what's next? I mean, how do you start putting a plan like that together? Because I wonder if you even ever expected a response. I expected to get paperwork in the mail, a brochure, a newspaper, a clan newspaper, something like that. I didn't expect anything else. So when I heard his voice, I was really surprised. Uh, I literally had to formulate a plan on the spot. And uh, a lot of times when I lectured around the country, people have asked me, well, what was your plan of operation when you went into this investigation? I said there was no plan. Yeah. I made it up as I was going along. Um, yeah. You know, in narcotics and in other investigations, you're taught to have a, a game plan. You know, you, you, you plan as, as much as possible down to the minute what you're going to do. There was no planning on this. It literally unfolded as it happened. And uh, that was that was the beauty of the thing. That, that was part of the fun of it, too. So when I told him, when he said, uh, you're just the kind of guy we, we we're looking for, when can we meet? That's when I really had to uh, kick it into high gear because, obviously, 
God blessed me with this beautiful skin, and I couldn't meet the guy. So I had to figure out how I was going to pull this off. So what I told him was, I can't talk to you right now, meet you right now, because I have another engagement, but I can in a week. And we settled on a location uh, that we both mutually knew and agreed to meet a week later. That gave me time to put things in motion. So I hung up. I went and told my sergeant what I had done. The sergeant looked at me and said, you're a crazy SOB. And, and uh, after he stopped laughing, he asked me, what do you want to do about this? I said, uh, I want to uh, I want to take it as far as, <coughs> as far as I can. Yeah. So I went across the hall to the narcotics division where I had worked about six months earlier. Uh, I had been kicked out of narcotics by the lieutenant because, uh, quite frankly, I pissed him off. And uh, I told the lieutenant what I had done. I said, I would like to use Chuck. Chuck was an undercover officer in narcotics that I had trained. And Chuck was a good cop. He was a good undercover. And I knew how he came dressed every day. He generally wore the same type of clothing, uh, a plaid shirt. If you look at the movie, you'll see Adam Driver, who plays the Chuck role. Adam Driver wears a plaid shirt quite a bit. That's where that came from. So I told the lieutenant I'd like to use Chuck because this is what I put in motion. After I explained what I had, my phone conversation to the lieutenant, his response to me was, it will never work. He said, the minute Chuck walks in and starts talking, they will know that that voice on that white man is not the same voice that they heard on the phone. And that's when I asked the lieutenant, what's the difference in a white voice and a black voice? How can you tell the difference? I knew what he meant. I knew what he meant. But he was blatantly, overtly, basically implying that uh, racism was going to play a role in this directly because I was black, I had initiated things, and a white officer could not go in and pretend to be me. So when I asked the lieutenant, what's the difference between a black voice and a white voice, he just stared at me. He had no answer. He said, well, you can't have my undercover. I'm not wasting a good undercover on a bunch of idiots running around in white sheets. I said, okay, and walked out. I went back to my sergeant, told the sergeant what the lieutenant said. The sergeant said, what do you want to do about that? I said, I want to take it directly to the chief. Now, in the Colorado Springs Police Department, we had a rank structure. It started with patrolmen, the lowest rung of the, on the ladder. Then we had uh, a sergeant. Well, corporals. Then we had lieutenants. Then we had captains. Then we had a uh, deputy chief. And then we had chief. I said, I want to skip all of those and go directly to the chief. My sergeant said, let's do it. So he walked across the uh, hallway to the chief's office with me. And uh, we had a private meeting with the chief, told him what I had done on the phone, told him about the meeting scheduled for a week later. And the, the chief asked me, he says, what do you need? I said, I need at least two narcotic officers, one to play me, Chuck, and the other to be surveillance with me. When we, uh, Chuck goes and has the meeting, I said, and uh, I need to use him whenever uh, issues come up, because obviously I can't meet these guys directly. The chief picked up the phone, called the lieutenant in narcotics up and told him, give Stallworth anything he needs. But that really made him mad. <laughs> 
Well, that that lieutenant is probably 85 today. He retired as a deputy chief, and he probably hates my guts to this day, and I hate his equally. Um, <laughs> there was no there was no love lost between us when I left the department. So, um, well, Ron, I think number one, I, I just want to mention. I mean, the the trust that the chief had in you to just turn and do that, number one, is really remarkable. And and folks, we're talking with Ron Stallworth, uh, Detective Sergeant Stallworth, and I worked together in the state of Utah, and he later uh, came up during the, his uh, tenure working in narcotics and became acquainted with Chief uh, Marcy Korginski, who's on the call with us today, and they worked narcotics together. And, I, and Marcy, I guess a question I've got for you is, You've been with Ron in those situations where stories had to be made up at the spur of the moment. Uh, I mean, that's no small thing to to investigators to have that capability. Well, I, I honestly can't believe the courage it must have taken for Ron to do this. I've been in undercover operations, and frankly, I wasn't that great at it. And uh, it's, it takes a real talent to do that. And clearly, Ron had the talent to do that. And continued to have the talent to do that. I never could do what he did. I ne- I don't think I ever could have done that. He was so good at that and and so dedicated to his craft that uh, uh I that's why he was so successful, I'm sure. Uh, well, Marcy's being, being, being modest. Marcy's no. being modest. She, she was a good undercover officer. She was good. Oh. Thank so. you, Ron. I believe you actually, Ron. Um so, so Ron, you're with the chief. He's he's said now you basically have the keys to the kingdom. What's next? Well, next I had to put everything in motion. I went and got Chuck. I explained what I had done to Chuck when he stopped laughing that <laughs> they thought I, they were dealing with a white supremacist. Chuck was all in for what we were going to do. Uh, Ron, can I Chuck, ask you quickly? Yeah. Tell yeah. me how... Yeah. After he started laughing, how did you really prep Chuck to do that? Well, I, to- I told him everything that I said on the phone, and that was a key. It's a good question. Throughout this whole investigation, which lasted about uh, seven months, I think, six months, thereabouts, throughout this whole investigation, anything that I said on the phone, Chuck had to be made aware of. Uh, because if he was going to go into a meeting or if he was going to place a call on his own at my direction, Chuck had to know everything that was said previously so that everything could link together and flow together at all times. That, that was the challenge. Tough. That was the challenge he and I had uh, pulling this off. He had to know what Ron Stallworth me was saying on the phone. I had to know what Ron Stallworth Chuck was saying in yeah. person. So I can't uh, even imagine that. There was, there was never, there was never any break. Uh, I mean, Ron, when you think about that, that that alter ego you create as an undercover officer, you kind of get to make up and build as you go along. He's now having to mimic what you built and created and envisioned and somehow mimic it in a way that's not going to burn you. Unbelievable, really. Yeah. And that was one of the that was one of the key elements of this whole thing. Uh, To Chuck's credit, he had to adopt my identity, not his own undercover, mine. Yeah. And he had to sacrifice his own expression for the purpose of playing me. He never has gotten the credit that he deserves. I tried to get it to him when I wrote my book and uh, started the Hollywood circuit uh, promoting the, the movie. Uh, but Chuck didn't want to have anything to do with it. He, he 
He has never stepped forward to accept the accolades that he deserves. Uh, but he he sacrificed his own identity for the sake of pulling this off. And I'm always, I've always been grateful to him for that. Um, Chuck was notified of my conversation on the phone, everything that I had said to uh, the president and everything the president, the Klan president said to me. And I told Chuck, I said, what I want from you is to go in there, meet this guy, try to identify any other people with him, get as much literature as you can, because I anticipated they were going to bring brochures and uh, Klan newspapers and all that. Get as much literature as you can and try to uncover what their what their ultimate aim is. Uh, what is what's their master plan if they have one? And that was his basic marching order. So on the nine in question, we wired Chuck up. Uh, we uh, sent him on his way, and he met the guy at a, uh, a location in uh, 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 not late. It was um, Security, Colorado. Security is a suburb of Colorado Springs, and uh, he met. In the movie, you see Adam Driver meeting a guy named uh, Felix. Well, Chuck met the Felix character at this location I had arranged. And we thought the meet would take place all there. The Felix character that Chuck met said, no, we have to go to another location. This is just part of our security effort. So that's, a, Chuck, that's a scary prospect. Sometimes that can be scary. That's it was. It was in the sense that I had no idea where he wanted to go. Right. Uh, as undercover cops, we have to maintain control of the situation right. as much, much as we possibly can. Yeah. And part of that is you don't go anywhere that hasn't been pre-discussed or pre-arranged. Right. Yeah. Uh, but there was a short lease and there was no nothing to do. Truck tried to talk his way out. He couldn't. So he knew where I was parked on surveillance. I was basically across the street looking right at him. And he kind of looked over at me and gave me a, a nod. And Chuck jumped in the vehicle with this character. And they drove probably roughly a mile down the highway. And there was a bar at the local GI from Fort Carson, Colorado. The local GIs would frequent this bar. And uh, that's where he went. Inside the bar was the chapter president I spoke to on the phone. And there was a woman there uh, who was joining the Klan. And there was a a guy they described as the night hawk. A night hawk is a bodyguard for the uh, clan clan leader. Um, all total, there was about four people in addition to the president, so five maybe. And uh, me and another narcotic officer sat in surveillance outside, listening to the uh, audio, which came in clear that night. And uh, we listened to uh, the discussion that took place. Uh, he gave Chuck uh, uh, an application packet, told him how to fill it out, uh, told him that you had to submit a picture with it. Uh, you had to pay for your own uh, clan robe if you wanted one. That was extra. And uh, you couldn't do you couldn't participate in any clan activities such as cross burning until you were officially uh, accepted as a member of the group. Uh, and then he told him, he said, uh, Chuck asked him, what, what, do you, what do you guys plan on doing? What, what's your goal? Now, this meeting took place around October, October, early November of uh, 1978. He said their ultimate goal was 
initially they wanted to have a what he called a all white people's uh, Christmas. And by that he meant they wanted to celebrate white people by uh, poor white people by giving them food uh, baskets, uh, bags of groceries at Christmas. Very noble, nothing wrong with that. And then he said it was all white, no Jews, no Jews or blacks, he said the N word, were allowed. So that was part of their goal is to have this poor white people's Christmas. The other part of their goal was they were expecting a visit from David Duke in January, to roughly two months down the road. And they wanted to get a mass march on Nevada Avenue in downtown Colorado Springs. Nevada Avenue in Colorado Springs is the equivalent of Washington Boulevard in Ogden. Okay. okay. The main drag. Main drag, a lot of popu uh, population and businesses and so forth. And uh, it was kind of the center of activity. So they wanted to have this mass march on Nevada Avenue. They wanted to get as many as uh, as many Klansmen as they could so that they could have about two to three abreast of each other marching in formation with their robes, with their robes. Wow. Now, picture that on Washington Boulevard. I uh, can't even can. imagine. And does it's that include the hood, Ron, when they say yes. in their robes? That, yes, that is the hood, just... hood is part of the robe. And so they wanted this as a show of force and to uh, announce their presence in the city. <clears throat> so that was their goal. And, and part of uh, achieving that goal was they wanted to exponentially multiply. So as a Klan member, they wanted Chuck to go out and recruit at least two others. And then those two others to go out and recruit two others. So they wanted to get all of their members to recruit two people so that they, they could build their numbers up and be able to pull this march off. Never happened. But that was part of their goal. That was part of their goal. So this was uh, what they told Chuck on that first meeting. Uh, Chuck left the meeting, came back to the office, and uh, I sat him down in a chair in the office. I snapped his photo. I filled out the application, attached his photo to the application, and the next morning I went to the chief and got $20 to pay the uh, dues and uh, sent the application off. So I waited. I held phone conversations in between and uh, learn more about their goals. And uh, I waited to get my membership card because again, I couldn't participate in any activity until I had a, been officially accepted. When my membership card didn't come in, it was supposed to come in in two weeks time. When it didn't arrive, I figured, what the heck? I picked up the phone and called uh, David Duke down in New Orleans. And uh, voice that was kind of fun, actually. Uh, picked up the phone. I asked uh, a voice answers. Uh, I said, uh, may I speak to Mr. Duke? Everyone called him Mr. He said, this is David Duke. And I said, I'm Ron Stallworth. I'm a new Klan member in Colorado Springs, and I'm calling about my membership. Uh, well, you're doing, um, when, that, when he answered and that happened, what were you thinking? What did you think when he actually answered? I had no thought. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know if he <laughs> if he answered the phone or not. Uh, and as I said at the beginning, I was winging it. 
Yeah. I was ringing it. There was you no know, You could have never expected David Duke to answer right. the phone. That's unbelievable. I, I didn't have any expectation, but when he answered, I figured, what the heck? This is, <laughs> this this is awesome. Fun. Here we go. <laughs> so, yeah. He uh, he said he was David Duke, uh, and, I, and I said, the David Duke? He said, yeah. I said, the, the uh, director, the, plan, the clan leader, the Grand Wizard? He said, yeah. And that's depicted in the movie, and John David's expression is exactly how I was on the phone. <laughs> D David do? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I explained to him I was a new Colorado Springs uh, member of the Klan, but I couldn't do anything until I had my membership card. I had mailed it two weeks earlier, still hadn't come in. I said, can you check on that for me? He said, yeah, I can do that. And I heard some rustling of papers in the background. And he got back on the phone and he said, we've had some administrative snafus here. He said, I found your application. He said, I personally will process it and get it in the mail to oh, you. You should get it within a few days, and uh, you'll be good to go. I is said, thank you, Mr. Duke. Huh? Sorry. Is this the card you're still carrying? Oh, yeah. I still got the card. Uh, and I ha- and I also got a, c- a certificate of membership uh, signed by Duke that came with the card, certifying me as a member of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, the membership certificate hung in my office at uh, DPS all the years I worked there. I remember one day Commissioner Bedrero walked in my office and was talking <laughs> to me. And I noticed he kept looking over my head at the wall behind me. Finally, he literally pushed me off to the side and walked over and got right on the on the certificate. And he read it. He turned and said, is this real? I said, yes, sir, it is. He said, is it appropriate for one of my sergeants to have something like that hanging on the wall? And I looked at him. I said, is it appropriate to have the heads of dead fish and dead antlers hanging on uh, a walls in the offices? He looked at me, said, I understand. Carry on. Remained on the wall until I left. Yeah, that's awesome. But uh, Duke, uh, Duke uh, sent me the card. It came within three, four days of our just talking to one another. And uh, I put it in my uh, wallet. Actually, Chuck carried it initially in case uh, he had to show his membership on undercover beatings. And uh, when the investigation came to a halt, I grabbed the card and stuck it in my wallet where it's been ever since. Uh, the certificate I kept from the onset. Um, but once I got the card, that opened the doorway for me to participate in cross burnings and any other clan activities that might occur. I did ask David Duke in that phone conversation if he was in fact coming to Colorado Springs like rumor had it. And he said, yes, he would be there in January of 79. And he looked forward to meeting with me. I thanked him, told him how much I admired him and hung up. David Duke was like Donald Trump. He liked to be fond over. He liked people to express their love for him and everything else. And so when uh, I talked to him on the phone, I, uh, played the suck-up role to him so that uh, stroked his ego, basically. And it helped to keep him talking. So, uh, But I always called him Mr. Duke. One of the things I asked him in the series of conversations I had was, Mr. Duke, aren't you ever afraid of some smart out black person calling you up pretending to be a white <laughs> and trying to gather, gather information on the Klan? He said, I never worry about that. I said, why? He said, take you for an example. I can tell by talking to you, that you're an educated white man. 
Oh my goodness. Yeah, I, I said, I'm not understanding you. He said, you, the, the way you pronounce the English language, certain words of the English language, he said, I can tell that you're an educated white man. I said, give me an example. What are you talking about? He said, take the word R. An educated white man like you and I, we say it like it was meant to be said. We say R. But a black man, and he used the, he used the N-word, a black man would say R-U, R-U. He said, next time you talk to someone on the phone and you don't know who they are, what they are, get them to say that word. It's a dead giveaway. I said, Mr. Duke, I want to thank you for that. If you hadn't told me, I never would have known that. So from now on, when I talk to someone on the phone, I'm going to ask them that. So from that point on, whenever I called David Duke up, I'd find a way to say, Mr. Duke, how are you doing? Mr. Duke, how are the wife and kids? Mr. Duke, are you coming to Colorado Springs? He never once picked up on the fact that this educated white man was suddenly talking like one of them. So that was his mindset. And that shows you how ignorant, dumb, stupid white supremacists are. Oh, the, this is amazing. Uh, everybody, we're, we're talking with Detective Sergeant Ron Stallworth, who is the original and the only black Klansman. I'm here with Assistant Chief Marcy Korginski, and uh, we're, we're walking through this incredible journey that Ron went on as he put this case together, including receiving his membership card in the KKK from David Duke, which is just amazing to me. But I, I, Marcy, I guess a question I got for you and then Ron, you is um, now I'm, I'm a white guy in this conversation and I am incensed that a human being would even use that kind of language and talk about an, another soul based on the color of their skin like this. W what must it have been like for you to be there listening? I get asked that question quite a bit. And I tell people, I was a trained undercover investigator. And when you do that, you're acting. I told this to Spike Lee uh, when we first, my wife and I first met Spike Lee and uh, the, the cast member. I said, what I did as an undercover cop was no different than what you all are doing when you're playing a movie role. We're acting. We're pretending to be something that we aren't. And in order to uh, uh, pull that off, you have to adopt a character, a persona. You have to say things. You have to do things that you normally wouldn't do in order to be successful. The only difference between what I did as an undercover cop and what you do as actors, I didn't have a Spike Lee to say cut and go to the next scene. I had to make that cut on my own, go to the next scene and start the character all over again. Not to I mention said, the danger involved. Not to mention the I, danger. Every time you go undercover, there's it's dangerous in some way or another. I, I told them that, too, that a lot of times we were doing things where uh, guns were involved. These Klan people, they always carried guns with them. They were soldiers at Fort Carson. They always, when Chuck would go meet them at bars and whatnot, they would show him their 45s or, or Glocks or whatever they carried. And they took pride in the fact that they had these weapons. And keep in mind, this was in the day before there was any such thing as concealed weapon permits. So every yeah. time Chuck saw them, they were violating the law. I could have arrested them at any time. But these, uh, uh, it would have been a misdemeanor charge, probably a $300 fine maximum, probably a week in jail maximum. It wasn't worth it to me. I was going for something bigger. So I, I ignored the fact that they were carrying guns illegally. Um, but they always had guns. And one of the guys, the, the Felix character that I told you about, 
he was always talking about wanting to kill blacks, how he thirsted for the opportunity to kill a black person. He wanted to lynch him, hang him. And uh, he was really a psychopath. He said the only reason he doesn't act on his impulses is the fact that, and I quote, the Klan was a nonviolent organization. And well, that may be, yeah. I have a question about that. So they showed him as pretty unhinged and some of the other people a little bit on the edge like that, unhinged. Would you describe that group as all of them having some kind of um, maybe mental issues or being unhinged and trigger happy like that? Well, if I were to say, if I were to answer in the positive, Marcy, I'd say half the cops that we have ever worked with were the same word. Uh, gun lovers wanted to uh, prided themselves on how well they shot, their ability to shoot. Uh, I remember being on the firing range at DPS one day and a sergeant, was, a trooper sergeant was standing there with another trooper beside me and they were talking about their scores on the, on the paper targets. And they were they were literally said, and I quote, I sure wish we could, I could get into a shootout so I could really put this to use. And I looked at it, but I said, are you real? You actually want to get into a shootout just to see how good you can shoot? Hmm. And they said, yeah. I never so, experienced anything like that. Yeah, nor, nor did I. But that doesn't surprise me that there have been cases when that's happened, Ron. So now you're you, you this thing is this thing is heating up. I mean, you you're in the middle of the battle now and you're trying to take it beyond a misdemeanor to develop deeper into the organization. What What's next? Well, we kept talking on the phone to them. They kept uh, arranging meetings. Chuck would go to the meetings. Uh, get a little more information all the time. Uh, for example, I um, I had one meeting on the phone with uh, the chapter president, and uh, I asked him. I said, "How many how many members are in the clan?" Initially, we started off knowing of five, and he told me they had about twenty. Might add, he lied a lot too. Uh, <laughs> his word could never be trusted. Uh, David Duke and uh, the, the Grand Dragon for the state of Colorado. The Grand Dragon is a state leader. The Grand ja Dragon was uh, distrustful of the chapter president as well because of his uh, uh, penchant for, for uh, exaggeration. But uh, on one conversation, he told me that they had 20. I later found out that the actual number was closer to 14. 14 actual members. And of that 14, all but I think three, two or three were, were uh, military personnel at Fort Carson. Mm -hmm. uh, and were they were they members before they moved into uh, that your area or did they get recruited in your area? They didn't recruit anything. They started. OK, uh, so they didn't come from another chapter and start it. They just started a grassroots effort to create a clan chapter in Colorado Springs. The president, the president in Colorado Springs uh, announced one day that he was going to form a clan chapter himself as the president. And he got some of his cohorts uh, on the base to join with him. And that's how these things get started. There is yeah. not a lot of organization to these, uh, uh, these type groups. Anybody can start a, a, a radical extremist organization if you have like-minded people that 
want to be a part of it and take the government down like we saw on January 6th. It's yeah, not hard. Absolutely. Very, very so common in fact. This is really interesting so, to me, Ron. So yeah, you're you're now starting to get deeper into it. And Duke is now starting to plan a trip out, isn't he? But you're kind of trying to figure out how to thwart some of the clan illegal activity that they're planning as well. Oh yeah. One of my conversations, I, I would ask uh, Duke different things like uh where are you where are you going for your next uh uh, rally next March. Uh, he'd say something like, "Oh, we're going to be in Kansas City on such and such date. We're going to we're going to march from this street to that street, make a turn here and go there." I said, "Really?" I said, "What's the purpose of the march?" So he'd tell me that they were going to protest uh, some racial issue that was common to that area, and uh, he was going to meet with local clan people, and he was going to lead the march. And uh, they expected to have uh, uh, counter protesters from uh, uh, the Progressive Labor Party. The Progressive Labor Party was, you hear a lot about anti Antifa these days. There is no Antifa. Let's understand that. Antifa does not exist. Antifa stands for anti fascists. There is no organization called Antifa. The Trump administration has been lying to the public by putting this type of crap out. Progressive Labor Party was an organization I dealt with. In fact, I had a simultaneous investigation going on on them as I was doing the Klan investigation because the Progressive Labor Party was the Antifa of that time. They were protesting the government, which is what uh, so-called Antifa does. They protest the government. They are very anti-racist in their belief. So any group that foments a, a racist doctrine, like the Klan, they are anti that group. And they will do anything within their means, physically, violently, or otherwise, to accomplish their objective. So, did you work? I'm sorry? Did you, did you work with those other agencies where they had planned to do their marches and so forth and... Uh, to, uh, what, I, what I did, Marcy, was uh, David Duke would tell me where he was going to be, what the purpose of his uh, meeting and the march route. As soon as I hung up from him, I called the police department in, uh, in Kansas City, for example, and asked to speak to their intelligence section. They put me in touch with uh, usually a sergeant, sometimes a lieutenant or a captain, and I'd tell them what I had going on. When they stopped laughing at the fact that we had this investigation going on, Black man pretending to be a Klansman. So you told them the whole story. Oh hell yeah! <laughs> that, was, that was part of the fun. Yeah. I would uh, I would tell them uh, what my conversation had been about, and that David Duke had said he was going to be in their city on such and such day and time for this march. Even told me the route. I said I'm letting you know they're planning to confront counter protesters who come against them. So you mm -hmm. need to be prepared. In other words, I'm passing intelligence on to them. There you you really gained a lot of great intelligence. You really gained a lot of great intelligence during this investigation. I did. I did. I I would get calls from the FBI at different uh, cities and asking me, uh, "Can you ask David Duke a question for us?" Because the FBI is barred from investigating uh, domestic ter terrorists, uh, and they and they couldn't just do that. So they would call me up and ask me to do it. I had the uh, 
president yeah. of the Denver chapter of the Anti-Defamation League. She was a very nice elderly lady, Jewish lady. And she would call me up one day and it said, Sergeant Stallworth, well, I wasn't a sergeant then, uh, Detective Stallworth, can you contact Mr. Duke and ask Mr. Duke if uh, uh, <laughs> there's something that we would like to know? And she would tell me what it was. I'd say, sure. So wow. I'd hang up from her, call David Duke up, just talk to him in general, which I did. And then I'd steer the conversation around to what she wanted. And basically, I was undercover for the Jewish Anti-Defamation League at that point against the Klan, who they hate. And I was getting information about the Klan, passing it on to the Anti-Defamation League in Denver. And she, in turn, would pass it on to their headquarters in New York City. Wow. So I was so doing you that part of You had a number of conversations with David Duke then. Oh, I talked to him all the time. Huh. Um, well, from that initial conversation over the membership card, I would call David Duke uh, on average twice a week until this investigation came to a conclusion. Yeah, I sometimes mean, he, I had a pur- sometimes I had a purpose. Most of the time, I did. I just, how's your, how's your wife? How are the kids? What do you, yeah. what, what, what are you doing? Uh, what do you think about this? We talk sports. You know. He was very. He was a very nice guy to talk to on the phone, as long as the subject of race didn't enter the picture. But with David Duke, the subject of race always enters the picture. Yeah. So I always had to be on my game when I was calling just to say hi to him, because it was going to come around to race, and I had to play the role. Yeah. But uh, he was a very nice man to talk to. On you mentioning that. It it was a glimpse for you of a Jekyll and Hyde. And maybe you could talk a little bit about how Duke eventually embraces you and asks you to actually even lead the chapter. And, and then let's kind of move into him coming to Colorado Springs, because that's amazing to me. Yeah, the Jekyll Hyde thing, I've always said David Duke had a Jekyll Hyde personality. When I talked to him on the phone about his wife and kids or anything that was not race related, he was uh, Dr. Jekyll. Very nice guy. Very pleasant. Fun to, fun to talk to, easy to talk to. It would, and I, I would tell my audiences, he was the kind of guy that you would want your daughter to date. He had this all-American image. He was respectfully a uh, nice-looking man. He was educated. He had a master's degree in political science. Uh, he now has a doctorate, but he had a master's degree at the time, and uh, he personified that all-American boy image until the subject of race came up, and then Doctor uh, or Mr. Hyde came out, and the beast in him was unleashed. The animal in him was unleashed. Uh, so it was a, it was interesting uh, being in his presence and talking to him on the phone. Um, David did not ask me. Uh, to lead the chapter. I'll get to that in a minute, but he was the one that asked me. It was the chapter president I was talking to on the phone. Um, One of the things that happened in this investigation, in terms of intelligence, I uh, got paid a visit by the uh, Office of Special Investigations of the Air Force from Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado Springs. And they... uh, they came to me one day to my office and they said, we hear you have a very interesting investigation going on. <laughs> People in my office couldn't keep their mouth shut. They were telling everybody uh, connected to the criminal justice system that wow. about this crazy black guy and what he was doing. 
And these guys said, we hear you had this investigation going on. Uh, tell us about it. So I told them. And then they said, can we see your case file, your investigation book? I pulled it out, handed it to them. They rifled through some pages and they come to the page that had a list of the names that, that I had identified. And uh, they ran their finger down the page and then they stopped. They looked at each other and then they looked at me and they said, can you take a ride with us? I said, where are we going? They said, we can't tell you. I said, what do you mean you can't tell me? Can you take a ride with us? Where are we going? We can't tell you. We went through that like three or four times. <laughs> Finally, curiosity got the better of me. Yeah. I said, yeah, I'll take a ride with you. <laughs> and I told I told my sergeant who was sitting there, I said, if I don't come back, <laughs> yeah, the investigation with these guys. <laughs> so I jump in the car with them and they said they told me, be sure and bring your investigation investigative book with you. So I bought the book, jumped in the car with them. I asked them again, where are we going? Dead silence. They leave the department, they cruise down the street, get on the interstate, and they head uh, south. Interstate 25. I asked him in the car again, where are we going? Silence. So we're cruising. All of a sudden, I look up and I see the overhead sign on the highway that said NORAD, North American Air Defense Command. Wow. We take that exit, and that's when I realized where we're going. <laughs> you cruise up Cheyenne Mountain, come to the entrance of NORAD, and they drive into the tunnel. And Day turned to night because it's dark in there. It, li it literally looks like you're driving down a street at night with lights on either side and whatnot. Two-lane uh, two road separated by a yellow stripe. And they there's, a, I think it's three or five-story buildings inside. And they pull, pull off to the side, get out, and we go up the steps into one of these buildings. And uh, they put me in a room, shut the door, and leave. They return with a full bird colonel who identified himself as a deputy commander of NORAD. Wow. NORAD is run by four-star generals. And uh, this colonel was a deputy commander. He says, I hear you have an interesting investigation going on. I tell him the story. When he stops laughing, he says, can I see your, your book? I give it to him. He runs his finger down a page where the names are, stops. He turns his back to me for privacy. He picks the phone up, starts talking to somebody on the other end. I don't know who. Hangs up, makes small talk with me, congratulates me on my career, my investigation, shakes hands with me, and leaves. I asked the two OSI guys, I said, what just happened? They said, you have identified two people in your investigation who are Klan members, and they have top security clearance with the military, with the government, they're outside right now on the console monitoring North American airspace. And yeah. the uh, colonel was on the phone to a general at the Pentagon. I don't know which general, but he was on the phone with the general at the Pentagon. And that general gave him the order to get rid of those guys immediately by the end of business that day. Now this was taking place about two o'clock. So by five o'clock, these guys were going to be on a transport. And I said, where are they going to be sent to? And they said, probably the North Pole. I said, we have a base at the North Pole. They said, we have a base pretty close to the North Pole. And I probably said, uh, wow. so by five o'clock that day, these guys were, were somewhere in the North Pole freezing their butts off. There you go. 
So that's how high up this investigation And went. they didn't have a security clearance any longer, I hope. Yeah, yeah, they took it away from them, and the yeah. Pentagon was clued in to what we were doing and uh, was clued in to the Klan presence in the military. Yeah. Uh, but that was another encounter we had. The climax to this whole investigation was January 10th, 1979, when David Duke made his appearance. He flew into Colorado Springs. Uh, in the interim, I had been talking to not only David Duke on the phone and the Klan president in Colorado Springs, but I had established contact with the Grand Dragon, who was based, he was a fireman with the Lakewood Fire Department. Lakewood is a suburb of Denver. So I'm talking to all three of these people on the phone. The Klan, the uh, chapter, uh, Grand, the Grand Dragon, the uh, state leader, um, he was a little more cautious and he didn't accept me very well initially. He built it up over time uh, to the point where he became trustful of me. Uh, but he had David Dukes here. He was always on the phone with David Duke. So I'm talking to the Grand Dragon, too. And he's uh, telling me stuff about where they're going to march uh, uh, in different cities and things like that. So I had Duke giving me information. I had the Grand Dragon giving me information. And then I had the chapter president who was not very reliable with his information. So I had all three of these sources going on inside the plan. But Duke made his appearance in Colorado Springs on January 10th. They didn't get the uh, requisite number of members to do the mass march that they wanted. That number was pulled off. But David Duke was going to have a uh, was going to meet his followers at a, a Bonanza Steakhouse. And uh, he was going to give a major, quote unquote, major address to them. And uh, on that morning, I was summoned to the chief's office. And the chief said, we've got a request from David Duke's people that his life is being threatened. And he said, I'm assigning you to be his bodyguard. <laughs> why why would he do that ron knowing this whole investigation is going on why would he do something like that? i don't know marcy it seems like a payday to me i don't know <laughs> I, well i asked the same thing my sergeant even argued against uh doing it uh, i told him i said chief i'm talking to david duke on the phone on a regular basis yeah i'm talking, I'm talking to his grand dragon his grand dragon is going to be there I said, we run the risk of blowing this whole thing because they might recognize my voice. He said, I know that. He said, I'm well aware of that. He said, but these threats sound credible. I don't want anything to happen to this man in my city. He didn't want David headlines to read David Duke killed in Colorado Springs. He said, so I'm assigning you to be his security. I want you to shadow him while he's in town. Uh, see that he gets out of, out of Colorado Springs alive. That's crazy. I said, okay. I saluted, said, okay. And I went to David Duke's hotel and now I'm in a, now I'm in a different undercover reality. I'm yeah. going to physically be with the man that I've been talking to for several months now, including so several of his followers. Are you yeah. going to change your voice? No, you never do. You never do something like that undercover unless you're skilled enough to pull it off. So you stick to who you are and what you are. So I meet David Duke, and I had to adopt another undercover persona, so to speak. Uh, I went to him. I saw the chapter president standing right there. I saw the grand the grand dragon standing right there, and here I am, right there in the midst of this, this flock of clansmen. Uh, I mean, it could have been under different circumstances. It could have been a black man's nightmare. Did <laughs> but, 
This was the reality I had to face that day. So I'm there and I walk up to David Duke and I said, Mr. Duke, I am Detective Stallworth. I never said my first name. I never said Ron Stallworth. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't even say Stallworth. I said, I am a detective, period, with the Colorado Springs Police Department. So he knew I was a detective. He didn't know my name first or last. And I, I said, uh, I am a professional. I will do everything I can within my means to see that you get out of my city alive. I don't agree with your ideology or your political philosophy, but I will do what I can to make sure your safety is ensured. He thanked me. He was very cordial, very polite. Uh, the, the chapter president and the Grand Dragon were standing there listening, and they were they had smiles in their faces. They, they saw the irony of this black cop being the Klan's protector. And they were laughing, and I held, I held my, my tongue because I wanted to laugh with them. <laughs> so David Duke, David Duke shook my hand, gave me the Klan handshake. He didn't know that I knew it was a Klan handshake, but I did. Uh, he gave me the Klan handshake and thanked me. Did you give him the Klan handshake back? No. no. I couldn't reveal that I knew it. But he... If you take if you take these two fingers and you grasp the hand of somebody to shake their hand, but you take these two fingers and extend it along the other the, the inside wrist portion. And as you're pumping the hand, you take those two fingers and you wiggle them into their flesh. You kind of goose them. It's a very weird feeling. Yeah. Very weird feeling. And no that's the plain handshake. So Duke did that to me, and I just shook his hand normally. And all the time I'm doing it, I'm thinking, get me away from him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so we do the clan handshake, and I then caravan with Duke. He had a uh, he had a meeting to go to with another uh, right-wing leader. And then he was going to go to a recording studio, TV studio, and give an interview. And... Uh, Later that evening, he had another interview to do with a different station. And uh, I just shadowed him every day. And then he was going to the steakhouse to do, meet with his people. When he went to the steakhouse, first of all, I bought a Polaroid camera from the office with me on that day. And the chief told me I'd have to be his bodyguard. Figure what the hell, I'm going to have some fun with this. I bought a Polaroid Instamatic camera. I go to the steakhouse and... Uh, all the guys were there. I knew several of them were armed because they were always armed. On that day, I had a 38 special, which I carried undercover. I had five bullets on me, period. Chuck and I had gotten a, a second officer undercover. Chuck and Jimmy, Jimmy is described in my book. He's a retired DEA agent now. Chuck and Jimmy were there. Chuck being Ron Stallworth to the Klan people. So Chuck and Jimmy were there. And uh, I walked through the door and they both turned and looked at me like, what the heck's going on? See, I didn't have time, I didn't have time to brief them that the chief had thrown me. Oh, my me gosh. So they, they saw me wondering what's happening, what's about to go down. And I simply kind of winked at them and gave them a high sign to let them know everything is OK. Stay on track, stay on court. And they relaxed a little bit. That's crazy. Duke. I walked up to Duke and I said, Mr. Duke, nobody will ever believe me when I tell them that I was your bodyguard. 
Would you mind taking a picture with me? He said, oh, I don't mind at all. Then he told the Grand Dragon to come get in the picture. And Kid Odell, the, the chapter president, tried to get in the picture and they shoot him away. So, and you saw this in the movie. The movie captured almost exactly like it happened. Duke, I walked up to Duke. I took the Polaroid. I gave it to Chuck, Ron Stallworth. I gave the camera to Ron Stallworth, my white <laughs> alter ego, and told him to snap the photo. And then I walked over to David Duke, put my arm on his shoulder, his right shoulder, oh. and the Grand Dragon, I put my arm on his shoulder. So I'm like this. And the Grand Dragon was laughing like crazy. He thought it was hilarious. They had, He understood the optics of this. David Duke, he pushed my hand away. He said, I'm sorry, but I can't be seen in a photo with you like that. I said, I understand. Excuse me for a minute. I walked up to Chuck, Ron Stallworth. I said, when you hear me say three, snap the photo. And I went back. And I stood with my arms down by my my waist. And I said, one, two, three. And I put my arms back on their shoulders. And on the count of three, he snapped the photo. I lost that photo. I made three moves after I left Colorado Springs over a 30-year period. I lost that photo somewhere in the moves. But enough people in Colorado Springs, Springs saw that photo. Denver saw the photo. And they know that the photo existed. And uh, David Duke even acknowledged me in a conversation we had. Uh, he acknowledged that the photo incident occurred. But uh, when the photo was snapped, David Duke bolted away from me to Chuck, Ron Stallworth, to try to grab the photo coming out of the camera. I bolted away a split second faster. I grabbed the photo, held it in my hand, and smiled at David Duke. Awesome. I love it. Duke, Duke looked at me and tried to snatch the photo out of my hand. And I told him, I said, if you touch me, I will arrest you for assault on a police officer that's worth about five years in prison. Don't do it. And all the time I'm saying this, I'm waving my finger like that. Don't do it. <laughs> he just stood there and glared at me. We lost him. I can't hear him. Uh-oh, Ron, we lost your audio for just a minute. You. Can't hear you. Hello. So we'll uh, let's get your audio back. Can you hear me? Hey, Mike. Yeah, you 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 sound distant, Ron. Um, why don't you talk while you're fiddling? We'll tell you if you pop back in. I assume you can hear us okay. All right, we'll hopefully get him back. Can he hear us now? Nope, he's he's completely off. He hung up or something. Oh. <clears throat> Fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, here we go. Here he comes back in. Uh, can you say that I'm retired so that I'm not representing myself as not Absolutely. Retired? Yes, I will, Marcy. Can you hear me? Yeah, yes. much better, Ron. So, okay. so let's so, go back um, to you. You were waving your finger. I was waving my finger at David Duke and telling him, uh, "Don't touch me, or I'll arrest you for assault on a police officer. Five years, five years in prison." He stopped and he glared at me. The laughter that had been going on in the room up to that point stopped. 
It was deadly silence. Oof. All these guys were standing around staring at me, and David Duke had this showdown, if you will. Yeah, that's and, what it is. Uh, all the time that they're staring at me, Chuck and Jimmy are standing there not knowing whether this is going to erupt or what. I only had five bullets, as I said, in my gun. I had already, in my mind, I had already figured out what I was going to do if gunfire erupted. With my first bullet, I was going to kill David Duke. With my second bullet, I was going to kill the Grand Dragon. With my third bullet, I was going to kill the chapter president. That left me with two other bullets. And I figured, what the hell? I'm going to kill me two Klan's women so they can never have any future Klan babies to terrorize the, uh, the public. That's what went through my mind in that split second. Interesting. Okay. So uh, I, I walked away from David Duke, got, got into a corner away from their bank group, and stood there monitoring what was going to go on. And he gave his little speech about white supremacy and everything, which I laughed at. I in the back of the room laughing because I had just destroyed his so-called white supremacy. There you uh, go. What I had done. Uh, Swinging your Polaroid back and forth. Please develop. Please develop. <laughs> yeah, it developed. And when it was all over with, I walked out with it and took it back. Jimmy and uh, uh, Chuck, when we met later that evening, they said, we couldn't believe what you did, you crazy SOB. We did not know this was going to happen. And I told him, I said, guys, I couldn't warn you. The chief didn't give me any time to warn anybody. And I didn't plan on the Polaroid thing. I just figured, what the heck? But it worked out okay. So David Duke was humiliated at that point. His followers saw the humiliation. They were seething, but they couldn't do anything about it. So now, how did this end? What made yeah, yeah, in fact, if I could, Marcy, I just want to say, Ron, um, I, I'd like you to talk about that very um, personal discussion you had with David Duke after this, how your efforts impacted and thwarted a number of criminal events that were planned. Oh. And uh, and we'll use that as we wrap up. And folks, we're with Detective Sergeant Ron Stallworth, the original and only Black Klansman. And I'm here uh, today with Assistant Chief Marcy Korginski, who's now retired from the police department. And we all had the chance of working together many years ago in law enforcement. And so this has been a great opportunity for us to just get back together and uh, and kind of uh, remember some of the old times and hear this most amazing story. Mm-hmm. Well, we a lot of people have asked me over the course of the past three years, what did your investigation accomplish? How many people were arrested? What did you seize? You know, this is how we think as cops. We we chart success on numbers, and I tell them we arrested nobody. We seized no property. We seized no drugs. But this was an intelligence investigation, not a criminal investigation. We gathered a lot of intelligence that was passed on to various departments and entities around the country. We thwarted. We stopped two cross burnings directly. I know because I was invited to participate. The chapter president called me up told me they were going to burn a cross at such and such location, told me the time, the the, the specifics of it, how they were going to light it, and invited me to participate. Being a cop, I obviously could not do that. So I gave an excuse why I couldn't show up, and then I contacted the dispatcher 
And you saw this in the movie too. I contacted the police dispatcher and had the dispatcher send uniform cars to the area where they were going to burn the cross and um, gave them the approximate time. And I told the dispatcher where we normally would have maybe one car patrol in this particular sector. I said, send two extras, three if you got it. Just have them cruise the area for about an hour and, and send them back. So the first time they did that, keep in mind, no cell phones in those days. So I couldn't get instant uh, response as to whether it was successful or not. The next day, placed a call to the chapter president, asked him how the cross burning went. He said, ah, we didn't do it. I said, what happened? He said, well, we went there to plant the cross. And when we got there, we saw a police car coming north. We saw another one going south. We saw one coming east. And we saw another one going west. He said, the place was saturated with police cars that night. So we just said, uh, called it off. And we'll do it another time. I said, damn. No, couldn't believe it. A few weeks later, they planned a second one. I got invited again. We did the same thing again. They didn't do it. They finally gave up burning crosses. They did plan a third cross burning, but in the course of talking about it, they said, you know, we didn't have any luck last time. Eh, just forget about it. So literally, we stopped two cross burnings directly and one figuratively. So I'm very proud of the fact that no one in Colorado Springs, especially minorities, no one in Colorado Springs had to wake up to a burning cross on a high hill. Very proud of that. Oh, um, boy, I'll say. We, we, we got the connection to NORAD and the uh, top security uh, clearance, uh, Pentagon. This is what we accomplished in this uh, intelligence investigation. Intelligence is different than criminal. And that's something that a lot of people have a hard time understanding. It was a very successful intelligence investigation. Yeah. And I mean, the challenge with these kinds of cases is that you may never know what you thwarted by having those uh, folks that were in the military re-diverted, hopefully uh, stripped of all of their clearances and their ability to do anything. The impact that would have happened in your community. um, I I mean, that's just incredible. And and uh, the, the fact that probably it stopped that clan chapter from growing larger you you later talked with duke about all of this after he found out who you really were what was that like i actually talked to duke one week before the uh before the premiere in brooklyn august 10th of uh, 78 of uh, 2018 uh that was the night of the premiere the national premiere in uh, brooklyn and uh Spike Lee hosted it. My wife and I attended it. Duke called me up a few days before. We were in New York that week doing promotional events for the movie. And Duke called me up at the hotel one morning. My phone rang. Voice uh, says, Ron, this is David Duke. I said, hi, David. How are you doing? I mean, it was like 40 years. It never happened. We're talking normal. I recognized his voice immediately when he said, Ron. And uh, that was about the time the trailer for the movie featuring Topher Grace playing Duke was released. So you saw that constantly on the, on, the, on the media cycle. And Topher Grace makes Duke out to be kind of a buffoonish character. David Duke was not happy with that portrayal. 
he was calling me trying to convince me to convince Spike to change it. You don't tell Spike Lee anything when he makes a movie. I bet. <laughs> don't, don't do that. Yeah. And even if, even if I could have, I would not have. But uh, Spike got a kick when I told him that David Duke could contact me. First thing Spike said was, did you record it? Did you record it? I said, we, I said, we recorded about the first 11 minutes of it. My wife's phone, she was recording. Her phone uh, power went out and we got 11 minutes and then nothing. But in that 11 minutes, Duke acknowledged that the meeting took place. He acknowledged the, the picture. He acknowledged everything. Uh, and this was very important because he had been telling people in the press that none of this stuff ever happened. The stuff that I portrayed in my book never happened, that he's making it up. He's a liar, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I got it recorded saying it happened. So he acknowledged he had been made a fool of. Fool of. Um, Is that something but, you just hang on to um, for your own record or have you ever released that conversation? Uh, Lester Holt interviewed me a couple of days after this took place. I was on Megan Kelly one morning, the Megan Kelly show. And then I left Megan Kelly, went across town uh, near Times Square to a hotel and met Lester Holt. And he did an interview. Spike asked me to save the interview. Don't give it to Megan Kelly. He said, give it to Lester. Give Lester a scoop. But during the course of an uh, interview, we revealed to Lester that David Duke had contacted me and it appealed to me. And we played that tape on the Lester Holt uh, show, yeah. the interview. And uh, if Megyn Kelly hadn't been a conservative reporter that hated Bethel O'Rourke, I probably would have given her the scoop, but she pissed me off. So we yeah. gave it to Lester. Oh, how amazing, though. Uh, that is just, have, have you ever had any contact with him since? No, I have his number in my phone. I can call him at any time, but I have no desire to. And he can call me at any time. My phone, I'm I'm not hiding from anybody. I've never hid from anybody. You could always find me. You still can. You know, I tell people uh, my only concern is the safety of my wife. If these guys come after me, as part of the, the, the deal of being an undercover cop, I still have my guns. I still have bullets. I'll kill anybody that tries to just leave my wife alone. So I've never been... Uh, confronted by any Klansman or any other white supremacist and nothing occurred after, uh, after this took place. Can you um, talk about uh, the, when the chief at the end of the investigation, what you had to do with everything? I'm just curious about that and why. My chief was a, a relatively new chief. He had been in office for probably two years. He was a lieutenant, that was his permanent civil service rank, and he was elevated above much higher ranked people with longer years of service. He was elevated over them to the top. So when he became chief, he literally had a war within the department from all these people that were trying to do everything that they could to sabotage him as chief. Yeah. He and I got along real well, and his support for me in this investigation, uh, without it, the investigation never would have happened. Uh, I liked Chief Taggart. He died a year ago, but he got a copy of my book. I sent him a copy of the book. He was aware of the movie being made. Uh, That's great. But I wasn't, I wasn't able to talk to him. But he had come from community relations. That's what he was lieutenant in charge of. 
So he was very oriented towards public appearances and how the department was reflected in the public eye and so forth. So when the investigation ended, when I was told to end the investigation, and I was told by the chapter president, he called me one day and he said he was getting out of the army. He said, uh, we would like to have more stable leadership in the clan. In the military, they switch you every two or three years. They send you to another base assignment. He said, so we took a vote, and by unanimous consent, they want Ron Stallworth to become the chapter president. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm on the phone, and I'm thinking, what the heck do I do now? Yeah. <laughs> so, and he repeated this to Chuck. Chuck had a meeting with him about a day or two later. He repeated this to Chuck in person as well. So when he told me he wanted me to be the chapter president, I went to the chief. I said, chief, this is the latest development. <laughs> I said, and I took my sergeant with me. I said, I would like to do it. I think we can pull this off at least for a period of time and imagine what we can learn with me, Chuck. Ron Stallworth as the chapter president. Imagine what we can find out about this white supremacist group and all the connections, because we had learned of some of the connections they had with the white supremacist uh, operation in the state of Colorado. So imagine what we can do with after? me. This was during the investigation. After David no, Duke. This was during Duke. Okay. okay. This was during Duke. When he came to town. Yeah, one of the things that happened during the investigation was one of the, uh, have you ever heard of the Posse Comitatus, the yes. organization? Mm -hmm. They met with Posse Comitatus, Duke's mm -hmm. people. And Posse Comitatus was wanted to link with the Klan, and they were trying to get the Klan people, remember they were soldiers, they were trying to get the Klan people to steal automatic weapons from Fort Carson's armory for them oh. in oh. preparation for the, for the big okay. racial holy war. You know, right. Raho, they call it R A racial H O holy wah war. So, this was taking place. So, this opportunity comes up for Ron Stallworth to become the chapter president. Or, or, uh, I said, Chief, what have we got to lose? We can consult with the DA and avoid the issues of entrapment, at least for a while. I said, but. I think we should take advantage of this opportunity and run with it. Chief said, no. He said, it's gone too far. I want you to shut it down immediately. Change the undercover phone line. He said, I want you to not attend any more, uh, have any more conversations with uh, these people. I don't want Chuck talking to anybody, and I don't want him going to any more meetings. And then he said this. And I want you to take every report that's been written and destroy it. See, that makes no sense. That's what I, why? Yeah, why? yeah, no, it doesn't make sense. My sergeant and I both said the same thing. Why do we want to do that? You're implying that we did something wrong. This was a sanctioned investigation. You authorized it. I said we didn't violate any constitutional laws, city, county, state, or federal. Everything was above board. Why destroy the file? He says, because I don't want the public to ever find out we had undercover cops in the Klan. Okay. He oh, was thinking, I, I believe he was thinking about public image should it come out. 
And I told him, I said, Chief, if it comes out, they will applaud us. They will cheer us for what we did. Exactly. When they find out that we stopped cross burning, when they find out about the guys that we're at, they will cheer us if it comes out. He said, I don't want this to come out. Destroy all the reports. I argued more vigorously than I should. At one point, the sergeant was sitting next to me at the chief's desk, and the sergeant had his hand on my knee, and he was squeezing my knee very hard. It was hurting, basically telling me to shut up. Yeah. Finally, I took the message that he was giving, and I said, yes, sir. Did like that. Walked out of his office, and I started cussing. The sergeant started cussing. We walked back to my office, and in the presence of the sergeant, I took one report, two reports. And when I say report, we're talking about one page or a half page. And I put them in the shredder. The sergeant walked out of the office. When he walked out, and I was sure he wasn't coming back for a while, I grabbed the two notebooks that I had. I had a notebook with all the Klan information. And then I had a notebook with all the Progressive Labor Party information because I had two simultaneous investigations going on. I took both notebooks, tucked them under my arm, walked out of the office, went to my car, stuck them in my car, and drove home. And those reports stayed in my possession all those years. And it was from those reports that I wrote my book. Okay, I was able to get direct quotes from people. I was able to recite time and date stamps. It's all there in the report. I am so glad that you did that, Ron. When you think about the book and the movie, what were the real differences that stood out to you that maybe you wish would have been different or just portrayed? One thing I didn't like was uh, the camera scene with David Duke. It it happened almost exactly like it's depicted. What I didn't like was how they had John David referring to uh, David Duke as, uh, yes, sir. Uh, When David Duke would say something, he would reply, yes, sir. I mean, he was being a, he was being a cop. He was being a professional cop at that point and saying yes, sir, to a member of the public or no, sir, uh, calling him Mr. Uh, he was he was in an undercover role. I didn't like the fact that they had him being that polite to David Duke because I wouldn't have said yes, sir. That wasn't my character back then. I wouldn't have said it. Uh, the Mr. part, when I was acting undercover uh, on the phone, I said Mr. But I was a, I was a cop at that point in time. He knew me as detective. Yeah. Ron Stallworth. I wouldn't have been using Mr. or under or yes or no sir to him. because uh, I had contempt for, for him and all his followers. I just couldn't show it because of the role I was playing. So I didn't like that particular uh, scene. Uh, that aspect of it, I should say. John David Washington did an excellent job portraying a 25-year-old me. I thought he um, captured. I thought he captured some of your essence. I really was impressed with that. I I knew you all those years ago, and when I watched that show and watched him, I thought I can see this. Being yeah. I really did. I it's, I seriously, he did a great job. He 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 did a wonderful job. I mean, he got a gold gold nomination, his first for that role. Adam Driver got an Academy Award nomination, his first uh, for supporting actor, and. Uh, the movie got, well, it got three Screen Actors Guild Awards. It got four Golden Globe Award nominations, I should say. And it got six Oscar nominations. One, one Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. Um, I am very proud of that, uh, that whole situation. The book became a number one New York Times bestseller. 
I never plan on writing a bestseller. You don't do that. You just do. And the chips fall. And in August of 78, I get a phone call telling me my book had gone number six on the bestseller list. And two weeks later, it was number one, where it stayed for two weeks. And all total, it stayed on the bestseller list for a total of nine weeks. So none of that was planned. Hmm? That's changed your life quite a bit. Oh, it did. I mean, my wife and I were running in Hollywood circles. Uh, we were we were in L.A. for a while. We were in L.A. or New York practically every week or every other week, going to uh, these big Hollywood parties with Jordan Peele, Spike Lee. Uh, it, it was an un- unbelievable experience. I've, I've got to write about it, not in the next book I'm working on, but in what I do after that. I'm going to write how celebrity slaps you in the face and your life changes and the, the issues associated with celebrity suddenly hitting you. Sounds very uh, interesting. It was fun, but it was very time consuming. Uh, I got so familiar with the LA and uh, New Jersey, New York airports that <laughs> we, knew, we knew we could walk in our sleep, you know, uh, but it was a wonderful experience. I never thought anything like that would happen to me. And uh, I can honestly say that I'm very proud of it. Well, were you were... ever? I'm sorry. Were you ever on set? No. For the movie? Spike initially talked about putting me in a cameo scene, but it never came off, and I didn't press the issue. We the, the first day that the uh, the crew got together, the actors got together and did the read through. They always have a meeting where they read through the the whole script. Uh, they're not acting; they're just reading or they're supposed to read. Uh, Patsy and I were invited to that. In fact, I said I wanted to be there, and they, they the studio pulled it off, and uh, they gave us a copy of the script. I still have the original script for Black Klansman, uh, a Spike Lee joint, and uh, I'll never forget when we got it in the mail, we waited till late that night to open it up and start reading it, and I was sitting around, excuse me, but I was sitting around in my underwear reading a Spike Lee joint and I was cracking up and I looked at my wife and I said, can you believe this? We're reading a Spike Lee joint in our underwear. And she laughed. She said, shut up. That, that, that's how that's how things unfolded. We still have that script. I got it signed by all the actors, as many as I could. It's worth a little bit of money now. And uh Universal Studios had all the actors sign a, a an official script for giveaways they were doing to prominent donors and everything. I talked them into giving me one of those, so I have that, and I've already priced uh, how much that's worth right now, and it's in the uh, high five figures, so it's only going to increase in value over time. I haven't signed that Universal script, but uh, one of the collector guys, he says the minute you sign it, it will increase in value because the story began with you. So, yeah. But our life was changed dramatically as a result of that experience. And you, you, you don't plan for anything like that. You just live it as it happens and reflect on it like we're doing now later on and, and appreciate it. And I do appreciate it. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, folks, we uh, we have been so privileged to have Ron Stallworth take time today to talk about his experiences 
and his dealings, not only with David Duke and the Klan, but the fact that he uh, infiltrated the Klan and became a card-carrying member, but most importantly, that he brought this thing out and it's become public in an amazing way. And Ron, I'll never forget watching you as you appeared on the stage with Spike and everyone else. And, uh, and those awards were given how, how excited I was. Number one, I'd never seen you in a tux. So that was really (laughs) shocking. But I I had to go buy a I believe that. That's true. That I don't was, think I've that, ever seen you in a tuxedo. That, that, that was the biggest negative of this whole thing. I had to go buy a tux and wear it. But I tell you, I never would have gone on stage if my wife hadn't said, do it. Because oh, yeah. when, they, when, when they were getting close to announcing that category, I leaned over to her and I said, what do you think I should do? Do you think I should go up there? Because we had been seeing awards given out and we saw people jumping up out of their seat, yelling and screaming and running up to the stage. And uh, I asked my wife, what do you think I should do? She said, you better go up there. That was so, so fun to watch watching, you. When that was so fun to watch that. When they announced yeah. it, I did that and got up there. And uh, you look out into the audience, this vast audience, and then there's about three tiers of head uh, of people sitting up. And part of me sat, stood there, and I thought to myself, you're at the Academy Awards. Can you yeah. believe it? And... <laughs> It's amazing. You just look out into the audience. There was Lady Gaga in the front row. Uh, Regina King, who got the Best Supporting Actress, was sitting right there. And uh, it, was, it was just an amazing experience. You know? Oh, and well, I, I was so happy for Spike because that was his first Academy Award. He oh, was it really? It was the first one he was ever uh, he ever won. He was nominated previously in 1990 for Do the Right Thing. And he was ignored. And this was his vindication. I thought he should have got an Academy Award for the movie Malcolm X, uh, but he didn't get one. He didn't get anything for that one. So the fact that this movie put him over the hump makes me very happy and proud, and I'm pleased to have, be connected to him. I, I uh, had a conversation with Spike on email about three days ago. He got a major award in Hollywood, a Lifetime Achievement Award, and mm-hmm. I texted him that Patsy and I were very happy and proud of him. He always returns my text. He'll always respond in, in very clipped, uh, cryptic terms. Spike, Spike talks in cryptic terms. Uh, Spike, how you doing? Fine. What are you doing? Nothing. He talks like that. So when I get a message from him that says thank you, I know Spike is genuinely, you know, appreciative because that thank you doesn't come easy. Uh, but that's how he is. That's very, amazing. He's a very warm individual in his own way, but he builds up to you. Towards the end, we were arm around the shoulder, and he always was very little little note about Spike Lee, Spike Lee. Whenever we came together on our travels, I'd go and shake his hand. He would tell me, ladies first, push my hand away, go up to Patsy, and give Patsy a hug. He would never acknowledge me first without first acknowledging Patsy, my wife. That's awesome. He always always said, ladies first. That's a part of Spike Lee that the public doesn't understand and doesn't see, you know. But he was always a gentleman, uh, always recognized Patsy, and he included Patsy in everything that we did to the extent that he could. She went everywhere with me except for the Academy Award nominees luncheon. I was invited to that. 
that was very interesting, a lot of fun, because uh, they have a luncheon for all the people. They give them their certificates of uh, nomination. Everybody gets a certificate that acknowledges they were nominated for an award. And uh, they have lunch together. And I sat at the table with Spike Lee. And, uh, you know, I'm looking around and there's Glenn Close over there. You know, the Michael Michael Douglas movie where she's a crazed woman. I even asked her about it. I said, you were scary in that movie. And, she looked, and instantly she put that look on her face. And I said, that's the look. But uh, Melissa McCarthy, the sweetest person in the world. Uh, I walked up to her and I said, would you mind taking a picture with me? I introduced her, told her who I was. She said, would you mind taking a picture with me? She said, no, not at all. So she pushed her weight from the table. She stood up and she snapped the photo of me and her. And then she looked at me. She says, can I ask you something? I said, what? Would you mind taking a picture with me? Wow. I said, no, not at all. So she <laughs> took her camera and took another picture of the two of us. And uh, we shook hands and she sat down. But very sweet lady, very nice. Um, that experience is, is, is a lifetime, yeah. you know, and it was all for me and Patsy was encapsulated in uh, a two year period. You know, so I'm very grateful for that. Well, folks, we've had the opportunity of listening to Ron Stallworth, the black Klansman talk about his book, a New York times bestseller. I hope you'll go out and get that. Also the Academy award winning film, the black Klansman. I've been really uh, lucky today to have retired assistant chief Marcy Korginski with me as we've interviewed Ron. It's been fun for us, Marcy, because we worked with Ron uh, years and years ago and uh, it's so fun to be able to get back together and see. So thank you, Marcy, for being on. I have a a question for you, Ron. There are a number of people who might like the special edition Black Klansman book and they can go to Amazon and pick up the book otherwise, but uh, you're willing to sign one for them. And why don't you tell us about this uh, special edition? Cause I think it's just incredible. This is, this is a Eastern press publication. Anyone who's familiar with Eastern press, they take books that they deem worthy of their attention. They selected black Klansman about a year ago and we published it in this leather bound, 24 karat gold. Uh, this is what it looks like. That's 24 karat gold you're seeing. And it's the entire book, pictures and everything. Um, but it also comes with this uh, certificate of authenticity. Uh, has my signature up, upside down. <laughs> Certificate of Authenticity has my signature on it and the date it was signed. And it comes with this card. And on the back is a synopsis of my biography. So that's what's included in this uh, Eastern Press edition. Um, I will let it go for limited time for $100. 
And by limited, I mean probably the next uh, the next two weeks. Well, number number one, uh, I, I'm thrilled that you would sign it and send it out to people. But folks, this is something that is usually like 160 or more dollars, isn't it, Ron? And I don't think you even give these away very often. This is amazing to me. Uh, it's a little bit more money. I'm making a price adjustment out of uh, respect for you and Marcy on the show. Um, but I'm only going to do it for about two weeks. So if they want one, they need to contact me as quickly as possible. Uh, go from there. Well, that's amazing. So, uh, folks, we're going to put in the chat below the link to get to Ron's email, and uh, and there he will uh, work out how you can pay him directly, and uh, and then he'll sign a book and ship it off to you. Just an amazing deal. And, Marcy, I'd like to buy one for you. Are you okay with that? I'm great with it. Thank you so much. I sure appreciate it because I was going to buy one myself anyway. Well, we would be honored to do that. And Ron, uh, I want you to know just how much not only your career meant to me when we were kids, but uh, how much it means today to be able to just get back together and chat about the old times a little bit and how grateful I am that folks like you and Marcy, I'm grateful for my own career, decided to take a challenge and become public servants and uh, serve in such a noble profession as law enforcement. So from all of us at Profiling Evil, thank you so much. Marcy, thank you. And Ron, we'll see you soon. My pleasure. Take care. Marcy, it's been fun. It's been great. I hope I get more opportunity to talk to you, Ron. It's been fun watching your success. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Profiling Evil podcast. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to go to our YouTube channel where you can watch some of the hundreds of videos we've created. Now, if you're looking for a great crime story, check out my new book, Deceived, an investigative memoir of the Zion Society cult. You can find it at profilingevil.com. While you're there, you can also sign up for our elite newsletter, the Bolo. I'm Mike King and thanks for listening. Hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil. I've been studying criminal behavior for more than 40 years and one of my favorite research tools is Truthfinder. It's online and you're not going to believe the information stored there. So if you want to know more about that new neighbor, your babysitter, or your online date, give Truthfinder a try. I'm including a special link below with special discount pricing, but you got to click the link and enter Evil 10 at checkout. Now, we're an affiliate, which means we get a small commission, but you can cancel at any time.